Coming up in this podcast, post-election market bounce, subcontractors battle, new iron ore, lithium and rare earth developments. Jim Penman, Perrin Group, the state's lobster deal and our newly released report on commercial property markets. Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News with Mark Pownall and Mark Beyer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to our weekly podcast and welcome Mark Beyer. Mark, uh, I'm sure we're all past analysing the results of the coalition election win, which took the pollsters by surprise, uh, but the reaction of the markets was significant. Very positive reaction, um, though we should get in a quick plug here. The Miss Maud's coffee bean poll was the one that actually did pick the right result. Right. Uh, so um, hats off to them. And they say that they've picked just about all the recent elections correctly. So who knows? Could be some uh, secret in that source. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but look, um, the ASX and the property markets have both reacted very positively to the election outcome. Um which, as you say, caught uh, just about everyone by surprise. Um, but gee whiz, we've now got what looks like uh, the, the coalition will have a majority in Parliament, um, so that'll give a lot more certainty uh, to things going forward. Uh, the ASX hit about an 11-year high, um, and in fact our own index, the BN30, so that tracks 30 Western Australian listed companies, that actually hit a all-time high. We've been tracking that for about three years and yeah. hit an all-time high during the week. Uh-huh. Um, range of companies contributing to that. West Farmers had a really good run. Uh, seven Group Holdings, Cedarwood Properties, Monodelphus. Um, so there's quite a, a broad range of companies. And, and Mark, am I right in saying, whilst it obviously has enjoyed a good run after the election, it, it kind of was on the, on the up a couple of weeks beforehand. Do you think uh, West Australian share market investors knew something that the rest of us didn't? <laughs> uh, well, look, in fact, the ASX itself had had a bit of a run-up in a couple of days before the election. Um, so, no, look, I wouldn't, wouldn't read too much into that one. <laughs> yeah, right. um, the other side of it is the property market. Now, obviously, this was one of the big issues leading up with Labor's plans for major changes um, around negative gearing and capital gains tax, amongst many other changes they were foreshadowing. Mm. So that's now off the table. Um, And uh, also good news, the Reserve Bank came out a couple of days after the election and gave an even stronger signal about the likelihood of interest rate reductions. APRA, the prudential regulator, came out with some changes as well around home lending. Yeah, Um, the the buffer that banks are required to have and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, And look, generally sentiment, you know, the the talk from the agents is that the phones have started ringing. Um, Yeah. And and there's, you know, that that classic thing, there's now a bit of um, certainty in the market so that people know what the ground rules are and they Mm. can sort of start thinking about investing again. Well, I actually went to a, a property briefing, uh, you know, property market briefing during the week, one of the big banks. Um, it's all Chatham House rules, so I won't go into detail. But uh, certainly one of the speakers said there was a massive recalibration going on right now <coughs> across the property sector um, because people had just factored in <coughs> a labour win for, for a long, long, long time and suddenly things are changing and it's not just negative gearing and the residential housing market and construction, there's a whole bunch of other factors. So uh, very positive indeed if you're in that sector, in part because people had been so gloomy about the outlook. We're seeing 
just a simple recalibration back to where where potentially it should have been anyway. Quite fascinating. Um, now, speaking of post-election campaign news, Mark, uh, there is a major battle going on regarding the operations of Subcontractors WA, an association. Uh, now, their former chief quit earlier in the year to run for the seat of Curtin against Celia Hammond. Yeah, look, we've had some of the members of Subcontractors WA getting in touch with us and saying, what on earth is going on here? Because they've been getting competing messages, emails and other communications from what appear to be two different factions within the organisation. So as you say, uh, Louise Stewart, um, she had a very good run while she was running that organisation, tapped into this broad concern about subbies who were um, in some cases going bust or losing a lot of money uh, when head contractors on major projects uh, went out of business um, or ran into financial difficulty. And it was the subbies that were being squeezed. Um, The state government has acknowledged this as a big issue and they're putting in place some reforms to try and address it. And uh, Louise Stewart, as uh, as head of subcontractors WA, sort of tapped into that and, and pushed very hard. Yeah, for... yeah. She was seen as the face of that, wasn't she? Absolutely, yes. And yeah, and that followed. She'd had su- success in her own right as a business owner prior to that. Um, but look, gee, it's changed a lot over the last few months. As you say, she ran for the seat of Curtin. So um, she quit that role, obviously. So, well, and look, and one of the things is, you know, at what point did she quit? Mm. So... Some of the other members, so we spoke to Terry Delane, who's been involved in the organisation from the outset um, and was, um, I think, still is vice chair. And he, amongst some of the others, said, well, you know, Louise has moved on. You know, we've got to think about the future of our organisation. Mm. So uh, they held some meetings and a lady named Michelle Livesey-Giles is the apparent successor to Louise Stewart. But yeah. there's, there's claim and counterclaim about who took over and who resigned and when these things happened. Uh, Matt McKenzie um, has done a lot of digging on this issue, spoken to many people, some of whom have since come back to him and said, don't say anything, otherwise I might get sued. So there's sort of lawyers involved here. Lawyers at 10 paces kind Absolutely. of Absolutely, yeah, yes. No, fair enough. fair enough. I think it's Livesey, Giles, I'm thinking that name. You might be right there. Um, okay, so... We're just watching and waiting and keeping people in touch with this? Yeah, well, look, certainly the, the, the feedback so far is people are confused and frustrated right. about what's going on here. And there's a real credibility question hanging over the organisation. Um, so you'd hope that the once a, a new ch- committee um, and a new chair are properly um, put in place, um, that they can get things rolling again yeah. and, and continue the good work that the organisation had been doing um, up until uh, Louise Stewart's departure. Gotcha. All right, very interesting. Um, now, Mark, as usual, mine, uh, WA's mining sector just keeps on giving. Uh, lots of good news for the economy this week. Yeah, and look, uh, this follows... Um, a week ago, we spoke about a special report that um, Adrian Rousso had put together on major mining projects, and uh, with, I think it's about $21 billion is the amount being spent on just the top 10 mining projects around the state. And we had another bunch of good news during the week just gone. Uh, Fortescue Metals Group, uh, they pressed the button on their Queens Valley project, spending uh, just over $400 million there. 
And this continues the theme that we're seeing from the big iron ore miners. They've just got to keep on developing new mining pits to sustain their volumes of production um, as the existing pits get exhausted. Um, so this is part of their Solomon hub. Um, it's on top of their Elowana project um, and their Iron Bridge project. Um, so all up, you know, Fortescue's spending about $6.5 billion mm. um, on these projects up in the Pilbara. Um, the other positive news, uh, West Farmers announced a takeover bid a month or so ago for Kidman Resources, which is a partner in the Mount Holland Lithium project. Um, there was an update on that during the week. Um, it looks like um, you know, all the signals are that that takeover will happen, uh, which means it's almost certain that the Mount Holland project will happen. Uh, West Farmers has been doing their own work on that. They came out with some updated estimates of cost. That's about $1.5 billion all up will be invested in that one. Yeah, so, you know, yet another big lithium project um, about to kick off in Western Australia. Um, so that's huge. Um, Linus Corporation, which um, more than incidentally was also a takeover target for West Farmers. Now, was, is? Well, uh, <laughs> the Linus board has vigorously resisted the, uh, the West Farmers takeover. Um, in fact, the, the current share price is now well above what West Farmers has been offering. Mm -hmm. um, so it's possible that West Farmers might come back with an improved offer, um, but no sign of that happening just yet. Gotcha. But look, Linus has been giving the market a lot more information um, since they've come become a takeover target. They're looking to spend about $500 million, um, not just in Western Australia, but they've got the Mount World Mine up near Laverton. So they're a rare earths producer. And there are another company that's in part of this electric vehicle theme. Um, the, the material they produce goes into the magnets, which go into the batteries, which are part of the electric vehicles. Gotcha. So once again, that, that boom sector. Um, they're looking to you know, crank up their mining operations and do some more processing in Western Australia. Um, and then a fourth one, uh, Kalium Lakes. Uh, now, they're one of about a dozen companies getting into the potash sector. So it's a fertiliser product. Uh, this was also covered off in detail in Adrian's feature last week. Uh, but Kalium Lakes um, are at the forefront of that, what could be a potash boom in Western Australia. So they've appointed a bunch of uh, engineering contractors and others to get their project up and running. So, you know, a nice theme there around diversity, you know, different commodities, a um, whole bunch of different organisations involved here, um, yep. and great news for, for contractors and others involved in mining services. No, it's, it's, it is a great story, and, uh, and that diversity is also, you know, it's interesting that all those sectors are firing at the same time, iron ore still strong as well, you know, quite remarkable. Um, so, Mark, now we're a very WA-focused publisher, um, you've gone a little off-piste, as they say, in the skiing world uh, to do a piece on Jim Penman. Uh, he's the man behind Jim's mowing, and he's not from WA. Uh, what prompted you to do that, and what did you find? Well, look, Jim's group is the largest franchise operation in WA, um, one of uh, many lists that we update as part of our BNIQ database is franchises in WA. Uh, Jim's group has about 350 um, franchisees here. Um, nationally, in fact internationally, they've got nearly 4,000 
Yeah. So it's an amazing business. And I think a lot of people still say Jim's mowing. Yeah, I know. It's Jim's antennas and Jim's... Well, there's, there's 50-odd services that yeah. they offer here. Jim's um, childcare? No, I'm kidding I, there. <laughs> <laughs> um, cleaning, test and tag, building inspections, antennas, fencing. They're some of yeah. the big ones. So it's building and maintenance and... Home well, home services is home the broad services, category right. that they okay. talk about. So maybe I'm being cheeky with childcare, but it is quite broad-based. It is very broad-based. So the man behind it, Jim Penman, there's a, I found, absolutely fascinating biography of Jim that's just come out. Um, now, this authorised is, biography. It's an authorised biography, but unlike most authorised biographies, it includes a lot of highly critical material. Mm. Um, you know, it's a rare thing. Um, and in fact, uh, a lot of the people that were approached by the biographer said, look, I'd like to talk to you, but I don't think I should because I might get sued. So Jim Penman signed a waiver and he said, don't worry, nobody will get sued for what they say. And uh, <laughs> so people have let rip. Um, he even passed on an email address because somebody had previously sued Jim Penman and the biographer wanted to chat to that person. And Jim said, here you go, here's his email address. I'll put you in touch with him. <laughs> He's a really st- very unusual character. Yeah. Um, he admits himself, he has no sense of um, social niceties. Um, he can be quite obnoxious, he can be quick-tempered. Um, he, he doesn't sort of just, has zero interest in, in normal sort of social interaction. Uh, but loves his business, is obsessive about customer service. So he's got this huge organisation, 4,000 franchisees. Every customer complaint goes across Jim's desk. In fact, that's his principal focus in the business now. He's got other people running the operations, um, but that's his number one thing. And in fact, he started mowing lawns when he was eight years old and all through his teens and his 20s, when he was a student, he kept on mowing lawns and was just outstandingly successful. Kept on building up large mowing rounds and he'd sell them off. He was a university student and he was selling off mowing rounds and making some very handsome profits as a young man. So when he finally established Jim's group, he was 37 at the time, that was 30 years ago, he already had a lot of experience in the field. so, I mean, it's, it's, it shows that there's no simple formula for business success. Um, they're a group that's um, experimented a lot. I mean, a lot of service lines have come and gone. Um, he's had a lot of disputes with other people in the organisation. Um, but sitting underneath it all is this obsessive focus on customer service. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, though, that, that I found fascinating, the only reason he set up the business was to fund research. He's had a lifelong obsession in... Now, he's, not, he's, he's very ambitious. What's the key to the rise and fall of civilizations? <laughs> right, OK. Um, but as with everything that Jim does, he's quite obsessive about this. Um, so he's got a PhD in history, but he's also studied uh, sociology and anthropology and zoology and... He's so he'd written, be a pretty interesting guy to talk to, I imagine. He's written a number of books... Uh, one of which is titled Biohistory, Decline and Fall of the West. Mm. Um, he's also bankrolled the Institute for Social Neuroscience at La Trobe University mm. in Melbourne. 
he's poured millions of dollars into this. So he leads a very Spartan lifestyle. Um, he just wears his gym's uniform pretty much seven days a week. Yeah, right. um, drives an old Mitsubishi, um, but he's poured millions of dollars into this research. So look, um, bio history. I just wonder where lawns fit into the bio history <laughs> of the of Western civilization. Uh, look, he admits himself. Um, you know, he, he, that's his his lifelong passion is this research. The franchise business just brings in money that allows him to indulge that passion. Yeah, well, there you go. Um, anyway, I found it fascinating. I, and, I find uh, I find your description of it fascinating. So there you yeah. go. Maybe it's one I've got to get to under my belt. Um, now, Perrin Group, uh, I'm speculating as it's, this is its f- has made its first major deal since the death of its founder, Stan Perrin? It has indeed. Um, and look, uh, it was a, an announcement during the week uh, from um, about the uh, one of the biggest shopping centres in Sydney um, at Burwood. Um, Perrin Group out of Perth has bought half of it for a lazy... $575 million. Mm. So um, it says a number of things. Uh, one is the huge amounts of money in sort of private wealth in Western Australia. Uh, we talk a lot about Gina Reinhart and Andrew Forrest, and the Perrin family is right up there. Yep. Um, when Stan Perrin passed away late last year, um, the group said his, their net assets were about $4 billion. Um, yeah, they own half of the Central Park office tower. They own about a dozen shopping centres. Yeah. Um, they Carousel, own half the Galleria. Yeah. Uh, no, not Carousel. No, sorry. Um, That's Westfield, isn't it? Yes. Um, so look. Um, so in a sense, the other thing that's interesting here is that you know, the founder passed away last year, but. You know, as we've mentioned previously, Stan put in place a structure. You know, there was already a board. There was a management team. You know, things have carried on yeah. um, in that sense. Uh, and worth reminding listeners, uh, he also announced, um, was part of his will, that the, um, the, the greater majority of the group's assets and earnings would go towards his philanthropic foundation. Uh, that's now chaired by his daughter. So in coming years, we're going to see a, a huge stream of money going towards philanthropic activities in Western Australia. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, hopefully it stays in WA. Um, and, and one more little point I'll, uh, about this. The Galleria, that had been earmarked for an expansion. Um, they were going to spend about, um, uh, I think, $500 million doing a major expansion out there. Um, you know, one of several that was been, had been talked about. Mm. Now, that got canned earlier this year. Yeah, right. Uh, something we reported that not many other people did. It was one of those announcements that got buried in the middle of a big presentation. Yeah, okay. Um, so, Parent Group had a whole pile of money earmarked for the expansion of Galleria. That got canned. They found somewhere else to invest it. Yeah, look, uh, and Mark, I was going to just, you know, just wondering about, you know, buying into shopping centres. Obviously, that's been the big focus uh, of Parent Group. Uh, so, clearly, Despite where retail sits at the moment, I mean, retail is in a terrible state. Partly that's an underlying factor, you know, the economy, or the economy is an underlying factor. Retail is the loser when wages are low and people lack confidence. But there's also this other underlying theme about the threat to retail from internet traders, you know, like Amazon and the like. 
and that the, 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 the bricks and mortar, so to speak, are, uh, are, are under threat, or the bricks and mortar retailers. Yet here you've got someone prepared to invest millions, billions in shopping centres. So I guess I'm curious as to, I guess one thing, obviously when retail is down, then shopping centre assets are cheaper. So perhaps they're just buying in the cycle. Or do you think they're taking a longer view, I mean, I assume they're taking a longer view, but a longer view that no matter what the state of retail and what happens with retail, those properties remain valuable in the longer term because they're right in the middle of you know key urban centres and the like. I, I just wonder about that. Well, I think a couple of observations. One is that Perrin Group just invests in premium properties. Yep. They've got a, you know, a dozen um, big shopping centre investments. Uh, I guess the other part is that shopping, big shopping centres are being repositioned. Yeah. They're a, a destination. Um, so they've got a growing food offering, a food and beverage offering. Uh, they've got a growing entertainment offering. So you don't go there. Well, I don't really fit in this myself, but <laughs> <laughs> this is the way they're being changed. It's not simply going there to do your shopping. Yeah. It's going there because that's the place to be. That's the place to hang out. And, uh, and spend your recreational time. Come on, Mark, don't yeah. you do that? <laughs> <laughs> um, now, Mark, surprise news this week was that the state government has backed away from plans to add rock lobster quota in order to service the domestic market. Oh, look, this whole thing's been a bit of a schmozzle, hasn't it? Mm. So um, over the summer, uh, Dave Kelly, the fisheries minister, uh, came out with a, a, a big surprise um, that the... There was going to be a big increase in the lobster catch um, and that the government was going to uh, decide um, how a big chunk of that increase would be used. Um, the industry went into, was in uproar. Um, and this is Quite an industry. Public. Sorry? Quite public about it. Very public about it. So they were going to increase the catch by about 1,700 tonnes. Um, now, this is off the back of you know, an industry that's uh, acknowledged as being very well run um, yeah. and sustainably run um, after lots of ups and downs over the years. Um, and so the people in the industry understandably were concerned about what it mean, might mean for them. And 1,700 tonnes from recollection was about a 30% increase in catch, correct? I think so, so yes. quite substantial. It was quite very substantial. Yeah, I think they're around 6,000 6, tonnes or 6,300 tonnes, something like that now. Now, a month or so ago, um, if not longer, there was a, a, a broad sort of compromise agreement that the increase would be only 315 tonnes. Um, and importantly, that would include lobsters for the domestic market. Mm. So late yesterday, um, Thursday, the minister and the industry came out and said, well, we can't do a deal. So after all the, the debate and all the heat in this issue, um, evidently it's just become too hard. Mm. Uh, the uh, Western Rock Lobster Council said that they just couldn't get agreement from their members. Um, you know, they were still concerned about security of their resource. Um, they were talking about getting their own working group to look at this, um, separate from the government's working group. Um, it appears that the minister has said, too hard. Yeah. And the government evidently has lost any appetite for a bit of a fight over this one. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you know, yeah. people like the Tourism Council are very disappointed. Um, you know, they saw this as a, a real opportunity 
to promote Western Australia. You know, it's another another attraction for Western Australia. Yeah. Um, our own locally caught uh, lobsters, and there was going to be a lobster festival. Um, it appears now none of it will happen. Yeah, it's a really uh, curious outcome. I, I I guess I can't help but think about the uh, the election result at the weekend and how uh, much focus has been on the northern Queensland seats that were affected by, you know, the Adani mine and some very, you know, so some very much caution about provincial um, economies and the impact of people making dictates from urban centres, all right? And if you look at that, and I can't, I'm not really fully across all the seats that go up and down the coast, but, you know, you've got a Presumably, you know, you've got Geraldton, you've got Dongra, you've got some quite interesting centres where the economy, if not the lifeblood of the economy in some cases, is rock lobster, then it's certainly a significant piece of it and a lot of people involved. So I just presume, one, that's something that may be a consideration in, in, in a decision like this. Do we really want to go there? It's two years, or less than two years from an election. Why would you pick a fight? Um, And it just seems to me that what I still don't get is from the original consideration of increasing the catch by so much, if something has been set as this is a sustainable level, to to even suggest to increase it by so much seems strange. Um, I thought the compromise number seemed reasonable, but maybe, I I guess in the end, if you're a fisherman and you're going to go out and catch lobster, you're doing it and you're spending all this money on equipment, you're doing it on a rate of return that is the export market. And unless you're going to get the same market return in, in the domestic market, why are you going to do it? So unless some re- local restaurateurs and tourism operators have actually got some idea to put together a small fishing fleet and go and get this stuff, I kind of question the whole, you know, what are we trying to do here? And in the end, which what sets the benchmark? In, in Australia, we just allow market prices and, of course, that presents some challenges when it comes to gas and things like that. Having said that, previous Labor government did provide a domestic quota on gas, uh, which you know has provided something of a, uh, a, a, a f- well a cap to a degree for domestic consumption. So, hmm, interesting yep. question. Gas reservation, gas reservation policy, I think, is uh, yeah. widely lauded these days. Yeah, this yeah, as a positive thing. Um, Look, I would have thought that uh, yeah. lobsters sold domestically would still have been a premium product, and I would have thought would still attract a premium price. Yeah, yeah. Um, not going to be given away cheaply. And an alternative I heard was, well, why doesn't the government just buy, you know, 15% of the lobster catch, you know, at market rate, and then sell it to local uh, users, you know, restaurants or whatever, at a discount and effectively subsidise the local industry. Now, you know, honestly, <laughs> as someone in a, as a business publisher and, a, and, and involved in business, uh, uh, I don't think that's a very good idea. Um, but on the flip side, this government is trying to do stuff in tourism and, and the tourism developers have highlighted the price of lobster as an issue. So it's one of those fundamental problems, isn't it? Um, now, Mark, uh, Business News has teamed up with Y Research to launch the inaugural West Australian Commercial Office Yearbook. It's available for sale. Um, Perhaps you can provide us some nuggets from that. 
So Why Research is run by Damien Stone. He's been researching the Western Australian property market for many years. Yeah. Um, and he's drilled down in a level of detail that nobody else does. So not just the CBD office market, which is something that we hear a lot about, yeah. um, but he goes into all the different suburban markets. Um, and, you know, it's just an extraordinarily um, depth of knowledge and analysis yeah. in this report um, that only Damien can deliver. Um, now, he's sort of broken down the different segments and suburban A-grade buildings, uh, the, what he says is the best performer in this market. Yep. And this is about this sort of whole segmentation. So when we say suburban, we're saying outside the CBD. Correct, yeah. yes. So look, you know, across the whole Perth metro area, there's about 21% of all office space is vacant. But then when you look in the different categories, and incidentally, two and a half thousand buildings. Mm. So plenty of researching that's being done by uh, yeah, Damien yeah. here. And, and, you know, he does it boots on the ground. He's got either himself or other people going and looking, actually knocking on every door and going up every lift and, and basically checking who's in these buildings. It's quite fascinating. Mm. So C-grade buildings uh, in the CBD, they've got a vacancy rate of 48%. Yeah, it's a bit tough. So if you're sitting on one of those uh, lower quality buildings, you're really up against it. Um, you know, whereas A-grade buildings in the city, it's only about 14%. Um, another sort of theme that comes through is that the more recent buildings also have a very low vacancy rate. Mm -hmm. Obviously a big incentive for when the uh, developers have sunk all their money into the ground, they want to make sure there's tenants in the building and they might not be, uh, they might be offering uh, lease incentives. Um, um, well, yeah, they, yeah, they that's standard are. for the market yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, they'd rather do that and get some revenue coming through the door um, and a tenant that hopefully they can keep for the longer term than have an empty building sitting there. And the flip side of that is tenants would rather be in a new building with all the modern services and yep. Yep. and they're willing to, you know, potentially make that move, which is never cheap to move. So, you know, it makes sense to me. Mm. Um, and also some analysis then about the, the, the pipeline of future developments. Um, you know, we spoke last week, I think, about, uh, or a couple of weeks ago, about uh, Brookfield and Chevron doing their agreement for a big new office building in the CBD. Uh, but that is the exception. Mm. Um, very limited pipeline of uh, new supply coming through for the Perth market. Yeah. So, yeah, it's all there in, as you say, the Western Australian Commercial Office Yearbook um, yeah. available for purchase. And there's a, a link on our homepage. Yeah, and, and look, uh, you know, not just, you know, the, the detail around, the, but, but in Osmond Park, Joondalup, amazing, you know, um, kind of detail around that. And also just down to, you know, the different types of industries that are occupying different spaces in, or different sub suburban locations. Absolutely fascinating. Thanks, Mark. And as you've just heard, the Western Australian Commercial Office Yearbook provides a comprehensive overview of metropolitan Perth office markets. The report highlights vital movements in the market as well as extensive insight into the wider industry trends and the WA economy. The report is based on twice annual research of suburban markets undertaken since 2011 and is the only report with detailed analysis of suburban office markets, including Subiaco, Herdsman, Northbridge, Midland, Fremantle, Belmont, South Perth, Joondalup, as we've heard, Perth Airport and Applecross. Gain a competitive advantage by understanding your position in the market as a landlord, tenant or investor. 
Now, the price for non-subscribers is $390, while subscribers get a major discount on that. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Mark My Words with Mark Pownall and Mark Beyer from Business News. For more information, please go to businessnews.com.au forward slash podcasts. And to receive these regularly, search for Business News WA in iTunes or SoundCloud.